We're going to be starting a new teaching series here today called If This, Then That. And uh, if you're a computer geek, you'll love that terminology. Uh, But very simply, it's, uh, it's a series on seasons of life and how to respond in a helpful way for yourself and for others and to honor God in, in what is the seasons of life. And I don't know if you've noticed this about life, but it's changing all the time. I don't know what your idea of a, a great holiday is, but for many people, they love to go to the Canary Islands. Do you know why? It's because the weather's the same all the time. So you go there, you go there in the autumn, the winter, it's pretty much somewhere between 21 and 26 degrees all of the time with predictable rain and predictable sun. Isn't that what you want for your life? Just predictable niceness. Wouldn't that be great where nothing bothers you or nothing goes wrong? Well, I'm here to break it to you today that the Bible says that actually our lives are seasonal, that we actually go through differing Some good seasons, some challenging seasons. In fact, the Bible in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1 says, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. If in a moment of haste this week in the sunshine you popped to a camping shop and thought, right, we're going to go camping in Scotland. And they might have asked you, said, well, what kind of tent do you want? Do you want a one season, two season, three season or four season? And what's the correct answer if you're going camping in Scotland? (laughs) It's four seasons, because you never know when beautiful sunshine is going to be overtaken by torrential rain, or hurricanes, or blizzards. You see, and God doesn't want you to be a fair-weather Christian. One of the reasons God brings seasons through our lives is this, that he wants to mature us. He wants to make us like Jesus. He wants to make us uh, stronger in our faith and, uh, and help us to become the people he's called us to be. The Bible says in Romans 8, verse 29, it says, God is conforming you. He's making you like Jesus, making you into the image of his son. There was a a famous sculptor, Michelangelo, and and when he sculpted Michelangelo's David, the very famous uh, sculpture, somebody, uh, in in sort of disbelief of what he was doing, they said, wow, it's amazing. How do you do it? And he just laughed, and he said, well, it's quite easy, really. I just chip off everything that's not David. And you see, God's chipping off everything in your life through the seasons of life to make you more like Jesus. And he also uses the seasons of life to make us dependent on him. In fact, Jesus' last words to his disciples, we heard this earlier on today, it wasn't, and from now on you will have it easy until the end of the age. From now on, you'll have no problems or challenges or disappointments in your life until the end of the age. That would be very nice to hear. But we've got to understand that Jesus said this. He said, no, no matter what happens in your life, this is the great prize to be treasured, that I am with you always until the end of the age. Nothing can take the presence of God away from you. As Mike Betts said last week at our conference, he said, that when God says, I am with you, that's worth more than a million pounds in the bank. It's the greatest treasure of all. The, one of the greatest kings in the Bible, King David, In Psalm 23, he said, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He could have stopped with, I will fear no evil. Even though I walk through death's darkest valley, I'll fear no evil. There's a resoluteness about the human spirit, which is so powerful to see in a time of loss and a time of grieving. 
We've seen it this week in Manchester. We've seen people coming out and saying, we won't be cowed. We won't fear. We won't give in to this. We're not going to change our life because people want us to live this way. No, there's a power about that. But David's power goes even deeper. Do you see that? He doesn't say, I will not fear. He says, I will not fear because God is with me. God is with me. And when God is with you, none can be against you. So today I want to talk about a very important season of life. It's the season of loss. Now, we sent out a quick survey to people earlier in the year saying, hey, we're going to talk about the seasons of life and things that you'd really like to hear teaching on. I've got to say, this one didn't score very highly on your list. But I decided it was very important that you should hear about it. And uh, because uh, here's three reasons why this is very important for us to talk about this subject today. Firstly, that loss is a fact of life. It's a fact of life. Life is full of losses. It's a sobering fact. If you were to look around this room today, anything you can see, anything, is not permanent. That means that you and I have to come to terms with the fact that we will lose stuff, often stuff that's very dear to us, very precious to us, through tragedy, grief, disaster. And loss has a massive scale to it. On one end of the spectrum, if you're a football fan that supports any other team other than Celtic in Scotland, you suffer loss regularly. (laughs) But you can lose your income. That's important, isn't it? You can lose your job. That matters. You can lose your health. That hurts. You can lose your marriage. Sometimes you have to grow to terms with things that, they're not events, but they're they're realizations that perhaps dreams or aspirations or expectations that you had as you were growing up, it doesn't look like they're coming to pass. And those things cause us profound sense of loss. Here's one that we'll all come to terms with, that loved ones we care about will die. So it matters because it's a fact of life. It matters, secondly, because loss is often beyond our control. In Ecclesiastes 8, it says, a paraphrase, it says like this, it says, good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. That's King Solomon's assessment of life. You don't always get what you deserve. Sometimes life's all mixed up. Sometimes it doesn't pay to actually try and analyze things too much. In fact, In Luke chapter 13, Jesus picked up a couple of news headlines of his day. And he he said, well, what about those Galileans who were murdered by Pilate and he mixed them with the blood as they were worshipping, with the blood of the sacrifice? What do you say? It was a horrific event. People who were worshipping got slaughtered. He said there was another event. He said a a tower, a tower of Siloam, it fell down and it just killed 18 people. He said, were they any worse than anybody else? He says, no, of course they weren't. But he was preparing them and saying, loss happens in life. He said, but what matters is your relationship with God and how you respond to him. Much of the time, I cause much of my own misery and stress in my life. But there are times when loss is beyond my control. And therefore, I must learn to handle loss when it comes. Here's the third reason why this is important. 
that loss is a human experience surrounded by human emotion. In fact, you find human beings were made in the image of God, and you find that God is no stranger to emotion. Sometimes we see emotion as weakness, but you find the God of the Bible in in Genesis chapter 6, you find that he's grieved that he's made mankind because they've just turned so bad when he made it so good. You find Jesus, the Son of God, who's 100% human but 100% God. You find he comes to the tomb of Lazarus and he weeps and he weeps and he weeps. This is what it looks like when God comes into into our world and he comes into contact with the losses that we face. He weeps, he connects, he feels it, he empathizes. In fact, we're going to read that story from John chapter 11. It's a story where Jesus is excitingly going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And we're not going to read that bit of the story, sorry. We're going to read the first bit of the story, which brings us into contact with this emotional reality of loss, of its severest kind. And you read in John chapter 11, he said, there was a man named Lazarus, and he was ill. He was from Bethany, the village where Mary and her sister Martha were from. This was the place where Jesus loved to go to hang out when he had time off. He loved to go and be at this second home of his. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus, now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. Jesus delayed a little bit. He arrived a few days later. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. A little later, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Loss, grieving is a complex series of emotions and it it messes with our highly logical Western brains because we don't quite know what to do with it. And people say that no two griefs are alike. It doesn't look the same for everybody. For some, it it looks totally different to others. People say here are some some of the emotions that can typically surround loss. You can face denial that it's happening. You can face anger at God and at others. You can face a bargaining, willing it not to happen. You can become depressed. You can accept it. You can accompany those emotions with feelings of guilt, feelings of fear, feelings of anxiety. You may experience all of those or none of those. Our plan in this teaching series isn't to try and... uh, Our plan is to try and prepare you 
so that when you enter these seasons, you're aware that this is a complex and choppy season. And you see in this passage we've just read some of those emotions coming through. Even in that opening verse where they send word to Jesus to say, two of Jesus' best friends send word, send word to him, said, Jesus, your, your friend Lazarus is, is ill, come. And their full expectation, in all probability, is this, Jesus is going to drop everything and come. He's a friend, for goodness sake. They're not contemplating that Lazarus is going to die. They're thinking, no, Jesus is going to sort it out. And yet, in a short matter of time, they're coming to terms with this fact that Jesus didn't come, that Lazarus did die. You find a little later on that that Martha comes out of the house to meet Jesus. Mary is way too upset. They say that those first period of weeks is often the, the, the very worst part of a grieving process, where the emotions are so incredibly intense. Not always. Some people say it's very cyclical. It can go on for a long time. It can feel better some days than others. But you can't help but pick up the tone of Martha's voice when her first words to Jesus are not, Hi, Jesus, thanks for coming, but Jesus, if you'd come, he wouldn't have died. She's annoyed, she's upset, she's angry. Don't be surprised in a time of grieving that you turn your anger on others or on God. This is part of our human experience. Feelings of guilt are commonplace in the grieving process. Let me ask you this, if you were Jesus in that situation, and somebody says to you, Jesus, if you'd come, he wouldn't have died, what do you feel? You you feel guilt. And here's a common thing that people feel when a loved one is lost. They they, they feel like, I, I wish I'd talked more, I wish I'd said more, I wish I'd texted more, I wish I'd phoned more, I wish I'd visited more, I wish I'd prayed more, I wish I'd fasted more. Perhaps if I'd done something different, then this wouldn't have how it would have turned out. These are real and powerful things. In the midst of this, you find a God who weeps and a God who draws alongside, who experiences our very same human emotions, who feels what we feel, who draws alongside us at the loss of a loved one or something that is important to us and weeps with us. And today I want to give you five things that you can do to respond to a season of loss in your life, whether that's great or small. And these are unashamedly stolen from Rick Warren, who uh, Rick and Kay Warren, they lost their son to, uh, to suicide, to mental illness and suicide. And he writes incredibly helpfully about the subject of loss. So if you're facing a season of loss today, then here's some of the things. If this, then that. Well, if you're facing loss, then here's the first thing you must do. You must release your grief. The Bible says in Psalm 62, pour out your heart to God, for he is our refuge. Here's something we must learn to do. We must learn to pour out our heart to God. In fact, I don't know if you ever noticed, when you read through the book of Psalms, when you're in a happy mood, it can be a bit depressing, can't it? <laughs> because you read through, I'm feeling full of joy and happiness today, and God, where are you? 
God, why is this happening to me? See, the, the Psalms, are, many of them are reality. They're experiences of somebody who's crying out to God, saying, God, where are you? God, draw close to me. God, I need you. God, I don't feel you. God, why is this happening? There's a, a funny view that can go around Christian circles sometimes. Is this that God wants you to smile all the time, and every time somebody says hi to you in church and says, how are you doing? You answer with the standard response, doing great, thanks. <laughs> no matter whether you're doing great or doing terribly. And that's fair enough, it's hard to share your thoughts with 200 people who ask you the same question every week. But do you know what? The Bible says this. Jesus taught it. He said, blessed are those who grieve. Blessed are those who grieve. There's a grief process that Jesus says is a blessed thing, that is a helpful thing. It's okay to grieve. Now, for some of you, you're naturally more emotionally expressive. So this is perhaps less challenging for you. Because you think, yeah, I'm pretty good at expressing myself. When stuff's going on in my life, people know all about it. The question is this, does God know all about it? Are you expressing your heart to him? Are you pouring out your heart to him? Because I think that can be the challenge for you. You can express it well to other people, but you get in a room by yourself and you're like, how do I start? How do I pray? How do I talk to God? For some of you, you're the opposite. You're, you're bottler-uppers. You hold stuff in. You don't talk to anybody about it. And I can be a little bit like that. I, I'm an internal processor. I much prefer to go into a room by myself to talk to God and think about what I feel. Here's the problem for me, though. I often don't know what I feel. So I find it really helpful when somebody probes me, somebody without me asking. They'll say, how do you feel about that? What do you think about that? And, and, I, and it begins to draw me out. And then I think, oh, that's how I feel. <laughs> and then I go back and I pray in my room to God and I say, God, this is how I feel. <laughs> Whatever your type is, then, then make sure you express yourself to God. Because you know what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 1? It says he's the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. There's no greater comfort that you can receive than from God himself. So therefore, it's vital that you pour out your heart to him when you experience loss of any kind. You know, sometimes... When things go wrong in your life, you can find yourself saying phrases like to somebody, you can say, you know what, it's, it's not all that bad. I take some comfort from the fact, blah, 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 as to why it's not as bad as it could have been. Here's that verse. Read what it says. He's not the God of some comfort. He's the God of all comfort. Isn't that comforting? He's everything that you need and more in a season of loss. That's the first one. So release your grief. Here's the second one. Receive from others. Receive from others. Galatians 6 verse 2 says, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. The Bible also says, weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. What the Bible is saying is this, that these things are meant to be shared with other people. And in a time of loss, we're meant to find fuel and help from relationships, from people that we entrust to help us in those times. Now, often in those times, we just need to withdraw a little bit. We need to stand back and, and we think, the last thing I want to be is 
around a load of happy people right now. And it can be a discipline to, to keep being among God's people. But it's important because people give us the perspective of that bigger picture. Can you, uh, can you just pass me that? Thanks. Do you know what this is? It's a stucky, isn't it? If you're Scottish, you'll know that's a stucky. And this is what you wrap a child's arm in when they break their arm. And it supports the recovery process. It helps them as their bones regrow. And do you know what every kid loves to do when they get a stucky on their arm? That's it. You, 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 get, you get all your loved ones, all your friends to sign it. And one of your cheeky siblings usually writes on your girlfriend's name or something. And, and, but, but that's... This is, one, uh, this is one of my kids' ones. See, what a picture of what church is meant to be. It's meant to be a place where we've so invested our lives before a season of loss even comes into our life, where we say, you know what, I've got some people here that, that when I've got a stucky on, I know who I'm going to ask to sign it. I know who I'm going to ask to support me and care for me. Now, in a church of 200, it's unrealistic for all those people, and to be honest, overwhelming if 200 people all try and care for you at the same time. Imagine that WhatsApp conversation. <laughs> it would just be overwhelming. you think, I don't need this. I, what, what you need is a few, a few. You need a small group of people who are around you, who are with you, who are supporting you, encouraging you, helping you. So drawing alongside saying, I know this is pretty awful, isn't it? Totally feeling your pain. That's why we have small groups at King's. If you're not part of a small group, I want to encourage you to be part of one. Before you go into a season of loss and you find, oh, I don't really know anybody. Here's another thing that you can do to receive from others. And this can be a challenging one for some. You need to sound the alarm. As well as being part of a small group of people that know you, you need to tell people when stuff is going wrong for you when you're in a season of loss, because we, we don't have sort of powers to kind of know what is going on in people's minds and hearts unless people say. You know, we're born that way in our humanity. In the, mo the moment you leave your mother's womb, that baby goes, <laughs> wah, 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 wah. And in its own little way, it's saying, service, please, I'd like some milk. Little slow around here, what have you been doing all this time? Come on, help me. <laughs> to the teenager who grunts in a slightly different way than he normally grunts, what he's saying is, I need some help today. And whatever your language is, you, you need to say to people around you, you know what, I'm not doing well. I'm not doing well. Don't expect others to get it. Sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. But surely when you tell people, I'm going through it, then that gives a, a permission for them to help and to draw near. Receive from others. Here's the third thing you can do in a season of loss. You can refuse to grow bitter. You see, we choose how to respond in a season of loss. We choose. I don't know if you ever noticed, some people in life just have happier dispositions than others. I remember meeting a, a church leader in India on my sabbatical last year, and, and he's got to be one of the happiest guys I've ever met. And yet when I asked him about the stuff he was going through, yeah, his wife was really, really ill. 
Um, he, he often faced threats of his house being burnt down from people who were opposed to his ministry. Often the youth in his church got beaten up by people who opposed Christians in, in their town. And at times he would be chased out of villages at risk of his life because he was trying to tell people about Jesus. And yet he's beaming. He says, but it's all worth it, isn't it? There's other people. And I consider myself more like this. Any excuse for a moan. It's like, gosh, the whole world has fallen in. And yet we choose how we react to circumstances. And we can choose to refuse to be bitter. There's a, a verse in Hebrews 12. It says, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble. And here's how bitterness is described in that verse. It's described as a, a root, a weed, that can grow in your life. Somebody was looking in our garden at home the other day and they spotted a weed. It was a horsetail. If you're a gardener, you might be excited by that. Um, and he said, you have to watch out for them. Get on top of them now, he said. Otherwise, it will destroy your house. I was like, wow, that's dramatic. <laughs> he said, no, he said, these things, they burrow underground. And before you know it, they break up the foundations of your house. It's a really nasty weed. He says, you've got to sort it out. Well, the Bible says that's bitterness. When we, are, when we feed bitterness, when we nurture that as a plant in our lives, then it grows and grows and grows. And we need to be careful that we keep that weed under control. There's two ways that you can do that. Firstly, you move into a place of accepting things that cannot be changed. So when you're facing loss in your life, you grow to a place and you say, okay, well, I can't change this right now. And whilst I might be in faith that God might do something about this at some point, I realize it's not in my power, so I'm not going to keep churning over and over and over in my mind and in my heart. Faith is not pretending you're okay or denying reality. It's refusing to be discouraged when things don't change. I've been doing a bit of reading about Eric Liddell, you know, the Olympic runner, won the Paris Olympics 1924, Christian runner, refused to run the 100 meters, but then won the 400 meters, didn't train for Incredible story. And for most people, that's all they know about him. But shortly after he'd won that gold medal, he went to China as a missionary. He was a Christian, and he just went and told people about Jesus. And he, with his wife and his kids, he lived in China. And he told many people, witnessed about his faith, led people to Jesus. And it was around the time of World War II, so things were becoming unstable in the world. The Japanese were advancing across Asia. And so the word was to Westerners, they said, you've got to leave. You've got to leave. It's unsafe to be here now. So he packed off his wife and children... But he said, no, I feel God's telling me to stay here. So he sent them to safety. He was never going to see them again. Meanwhile, he, a short while after, he got packed off to a concentration camp. But he didn't grow bitter in that process. In fact, it says he spent his time teaching children who were incarcerated with him. He spent his time teaching fellow prisoners not to be bitter and to forgive their enemies. And then he died two years later. And you could say, well, that's a tragedy. That's a loss. Well, here's what he said about loss. Eric Little said, Circumstances may appear to wreck our lives and God's plans, but God is not helpless among the ruins. 
Circumstances may appear to wreck our lives and God's plans, but God is not helpless among the ruins. He is always master of the situation. Here is his understanding. God's got this. God's got this. He's in control. It might look a right mess from a human point of view. I might not see my wife and children, but I trust God. Accept what cannot be changed. Here's the second thing you can do to refuse the root of bitterness. Look at what's left rather than what is lost. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I once heard the story of a man who'd read this verse about giving thanks in all circumstances. And he said to his uh, friend, he said, I found this verse and it's changed my life. He said, I'm just thankful in every situation now. And his friend says, yeah, right. So he says, I'm going to prove it to you. So they go out for the day. And they leave the house, they're going to go and catch a train. They walk to the train station. Halfway, torrential rain just soaks them through to the skin. They're unprepared. And his friend says, thankful to God, are you? And he says, you know what? I was just thanking God because we haven't had rain for ages. And I was just thanking God for the farmers that that they're going to be producing much better crops now, which will then impact our food chain. It's just wonderful that God sent the rain. Then they got to the train station. The train was delayed for an hour. And the man said, thankful for God, are you? To, to God, are you for the delay? He says, well, yeah, I was just thanking God that I've just got this little bit of extra time to worship and to pray, to read my Bible. So they get on the train, and it's one of those old trains with the compartments, Harry Potter style, you know. And they get in the train, and it's a six-seater compartment, and it's empty. And the whistle blows, and they think, great, we've got it to ourselves. Just then, a lady with six brats of kids gets in the carriage with them. And the, lady, the, the train pulls away, and for the next two and a half hours, the lady is speaking loudly into her mobile phone, describing her personal life to all who could hear, which were these two men. Meanwhile, these kids were totally out of control. They were climbing up the walls. They had their iPads on full volume watching films, and, and the, the, nothing was happening. And this woman wasn't doing anything to control them. It was brutal. They were kind of, kind of right up against these men. After two and a half hours, they finally get out. The guy says to them, he says, Thankful to God, are you? In every situation, he says, he says, you know what? He said, I was just thanking God she's not my wife. <laughs> there, was a, there was a famous hymn writer. Uh, she was an American lady. Her name was Fanny Crosby. Okay, And she died 100 years ago. But... Her story is that she died age 95, but she was blind for all of her life. Two months into her life, she was given some wrong, wrong, dead, wrong medication by somebody who didn't turn out to be a doctor, and it blinded her for life. It was a real tragedy from a human perspective. And something like that could, could turn some people bitter for life, of how they've been treated, of how, how wrongs, they're a victim to the wrongs, and she was certainly a victim of wrong. But she turned her adversity to something very powerful. She discovered that she was good at poetry. She discovered that she was good at writing hymns. In fact, we still sing the odd one or two of her hymns. Many Christians sing lots of them across the world today. And at, at times, she would write six or seven hymns a day. In fact, because she couldn't read, it says she zealously memorized the Bible. Even as a child, she memorized five chapters a week. 
She could recite the Pentateuch, that's the first five books, the Gospels, Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, and many Psalms, chapter and verse. You wonder why she was good at writing hymns. She, she devoted herself to the memorizing of Scripture, writing hymns. And somebody, some well-meaning person said to her one day, they said, you know, Fanny, they said, you're so gifted. You do so many things so well. What a pity that God didn't bless you with eyesight as well. And she gave this incredible reply. She said, do you know that if at birth I'd been able to pray one thing, it would have been that I was born blind? Because when I get to heaven, the first face that I shall ever see will be that of Jesus, my Savior. Isn't that amazing? That's not somebody who's bitter saying, why did this happen? That's somebody who's saying, in all things, I look to God. God turns around all things for good. And in this situation, the wonderful thing is, I'll get to see Jesus as my first vision when he opens my eyes. Focus on what's left. The antidote antidote to depression is gratitude. Make a list today or this week. Write a list of a hundred things that God has blessed you with in your life. And I guarantee at the end of that list, you won't be feeling bitter. In fact, you'll have been putting the poison on that weed. Fourthly, remember what's important. Losses clarify our values. Jesus in Luke 12 said, life isn't about the abundance of your possessions. And if you're suffering loss on a, on, on a lower scale of, of losing stuff, then know that this, the Bible says, that we brought nothing into the world and we'll take nothing out of it. Rick Warren says, don't confuse what you're living on with what you're living for. Don't confuse your possessions with your position in Christ. Know what is truly valuable. And the most important stuff in life you can have is relationship with God and relationship with people. In fact, Jesus said the greatest loss you can experience is this, to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul because you didn't have relationship with God. And today, maybe you don't have relationship with God. Maybe you've fallen out of that, or maybe you feel like you never had that. And here's my invitation to you, to come and value what's truly valuable, no matter what season you're in. Even if other stuff's going wrong for you, come and get the possession worth more than anything else, a relationship with God through Jesus. Romans 8. Paul lists whole load of losses that these Christians he's writing to are experiencing. He says, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. We're facing death all day long. And then he goes on to say this on the next verse. In all this, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels, demons, present nor the future, powers, height, depth, or anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Here's the prize. Nothing can separate you from God. Nothing can take you away from his love and his grip on your life. Here's the fifth and final thing. Rely on Christ. Release your grief. Receive from others. Refuse to be bitter. Remember what's important. And rely on Christ. The Apostle Paul said, 
I've learned the secret of being content in all circumstances. And I can do all this through him who gives me strength. What he's saying is this. Jesus is bigger than any sense of loss I could realize. He more than makes up for it. He says, that's the secret. It's not a very good secret, is it? He's let everybody know now. That's the secret that he wants to share with you today. How do we rely on him? Well, three things. Firstly, you lean on him. He's the one who gives genuine, strong, and stable leadership in a time of loss. You lean on him. He didn't just give you a book or a talk or or an MP3 to listen to. He gave you himself. And you can draw near to him. You can know him. You can lean on him. He loves to be leaned on and he can carry your weight. Here's the second way you rely on him. You listen to him. In a season of loss, we find ourselves at sea and we don't know what to think or where to go or what to do. Well, Jesus says that he's a good shepherd who'll lead us faithfully forward. Listen to him and he'll speak to you. If you're facing loss and think, I don't know what to do, he will guide you. Trust yourself to him. And here's the third and final thing, to rely on him. Look to him as your saviour. Look to him. The name Jesus means saviour. And you can find yourself swimming around in a season of loss, yet Jesus is the one who grips us and grabs us and pulls us out and dries us with his towel because he's the saviour. No situation is hopeless because Jesus is the saviour. And because Jesus is the saviour, he pours out the Holy Spirit. And the Bible gives the Holy Spirit another name, which is this. He calls him the comforter. So when you lean on Jesus, he does this powerful thing. When you call out to him, he pours the Holy Spirit into your life. And as you receive the Holy Spirit, he begins to comfort you in all your troubles. And he begins to help you see perspective beyond the loss that you're experiencing. He begins to heal the hurt that you're experiencing. And he helps you through a season and into a season to come. Amen. Let's pray. I don't know if the band could come and join us. We'll sing a final song in just a moment. Let's pray together. Lord, we... We want to pray, Lord, that you'd help us to apply these things when we encounter the season of loss in our lives. And Lord, I just want to pray for anyone here, Lord, who is going through this right now. Any who are hurting, any who are grieving. Lord, as a church family, we want to just be alongside them right now. Please, Lord, would you comfort them in their grief? Please, would you give them strength, give them friendships that will help them? Lord, please, would you bring them through this season? In Jesus' name. Amen.